I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Kevin Mitchell, is a professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. His research focuses on the genetic program for the wiring of the brain as it affects psychiatric and neurological diseases, as well as perceptual conditions such as synesthesia. He's the editor of the Genetics of Neurodevelopmental Disorders, published in 2015, and the author of Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shape Who We Are, published in 2018, and Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will, published in October of 2023. He's also the author of Wiring the Brain, a science blog for general audiences. So Kevin, welcome to Delving In. Thanks very much, Stuart. Thanks for having me. So I've been long fascinated by the free will determinism problem starting about 50 years ago while in high school. And I firmly sided with the free will side of the debate, but was never quite able to make a coherent account of how it's possible. I just couldn't bring myself to believe that the sense of agency is just an illusion and that we're all just complicated machines predestined for everything we've ever done and will ever do. And amazingly, this debate has been going on since the days of the ancient Greeks a conundrum with real staying power. But we shouldn't just dismiss it as some kind of nerdy academic obsession. This has real implications for how we treat others and even ourselves. In recent years, we've seen it, at least in this country, a growing, this country meaning the United States, not necessarily Ireland, I'm not as familiar. There's been a growing tendency to attribute our faults, our mistakes, and even our suffering to the actions of a faulty brain, as if the brain is in control rather than the person the sense of our own agency is being eroded, and note the passive tense, who's doing the eroding. That said, I want to congratulate you on your book, Free Agents, a really ambitious rendering of the grand sweep of evolution, not only of agency and free will, but also of its origin starting billions of years ago of how life diverged from inanimate matter. So before you launch right into the content of the book, tell us what drew you both to the topic and to your particular take on it, which runs counter to the current views, I think, of most neurologists, and perhaps even your own earlier views. Now that you've said it, I wonder if it runs counter to my earlier views. It might, it, maybe, I'm trying to cast back what I used to think about it. Partly what prompted me to write about this and tackle this problem was the subject of my previous book, which was how our brains get wired, how the, the way that our brains develop in utero and in early stages really means that we're not blank slates, that we have some psychological predispositions. So we all have human nature, broadly speaking, but we have individual variations on it. So we have our own individual natures, psychological, behavioral predispositions. And a question that, that I would often get when talking about that is, what does that mean for free will? If, I'm, if I came wired a certain way and that's affecting my how outgoing I am or how anxious I am or how neurotic or conscientious which in turn, those factors are influencing my actual decisions on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, then how in control am I? Am I just playing out my programming in the way that a non-player character in a video game would just behave without any real freedom? And I think that's the essence of the concern, because on the one hand, we feel, I think, like we make decisions most of the time. We can think about things. We make deliberative choices. We can articulate our reasons for doing things. We can tell each other why we've done something. We can examine those reasons and so on. All of that seems to fit with the idea that we really do make decisions. And yet there's always these occasional cases where you did something and you don't, 
you find it hard to know why you did it, even to say, yeah, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I hadn't said that. The, the piece of cake that you ate on a whim that, that ruins your diet or, or whatever it is. So some instances where we feel a little bit less in control, enough to give this niggling worry. Maybe I'm never in control. Maybe all of the things I do are like that. And it's just an illusion that I have control. And that's a view that, as you said, is being promulgated by a, a, a number of prominent neuroscientists lately and over the past couple of decades, partly because we're learning so much about how the brain works. And we can see the, the cogs turning and we can even get in there and intervene in, in animals, sometimes even in humans. We can manipulate the circuits. We can alter the way an organism behaves, what it does, what it's thinking, and so on, in a, in a way that makes it all look like it's just mechanism. And that's really the key kind of issue is that when neuroscience discovers the machinery that we're using to make a decision, some people would say it's the machinery that's making the decision. It's not us using it. It's just the machinery. And that, I feel, is, is just a bridge too far. I think that eliminates the agent. It's el it eliminates the self from view. There's nothing for the self to do. It's just the brain making decisions. So that, those were the views that I wanted to tackle because I think this issue is really crucial for all the reasons you already mentioned, but it's also much more basic of just basic biological interest. Because one thing, the main thing that separates living things from non-living things is that living organisms can act in the world. They can do things in the ways that a rock or an electron or a planet doesn't do anything. There was a deeper mystery there that I wanted to start getting into about how any living organism could be said to act to really do something. Yeah, so I, I think what you're talking about points to a number of different kind of basic profound issues. One is the mind-body dualism, which I think as a scientist, and I think probably most people would agree, that has to be an illusion, you know, that there can't be a totally separate sphere, is it? Because if there were, then how could the spiritual or mental sphere influence the physical? You know, they're, they're separate by definition. One thing is how do you rescue the idea of mind and self and uh, identity? without invoking some kind of ghost in the machine. So that's one, one, one point. And, and then another point is that certainly it's clear, even from the time of Freud, that there's an awful lot happening unconsciously. And I think we realize that it's not just the emotional unconscious, but there's also how we walk or how we do anything relies very much on unconscious processing. But you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because there's a lot happening unconsciously and just because there's a lot of our motivations and our habits are done without thinking, that doesn't mean that there is no thinking at all. Exactly right. And those two issues are key and they're related to each other. So the, the idea that the self is, yeah, like you said, the ghost in the machine, the immaterial spirit or soul that is that is the essence of you somehow that's different from your body. It's like you, you're inhabiting the body, right? That is a supernatural kind of idea and one that science generally rejects. And it's one that I reject as well. But I don't think the alternative is to say there's no self. I think the self is the emergent set of all the processes that constitutes you. So it's something that you do. It's not something that you have. Uh, and so this, the self is this sort of emergent, holistic, ongoing pattern 
that persists through time. And that's really what it means to be a living thing at all, actually. We have a psychological self, but we also just have a physical self in the same way that any other organism does, where the whole point of being a living thing is to keep that pattern persisting through time. I think we can naturalize the idea of a self without having to invoke the supernatural or any kind of uh, immaterial ego or a little man that lives inside your head and that somehow is pulling the controls through ghostly protoplasm or something like that. Now, at the same time, it's true that when, we're, when we feel most in control of our own actions is when we're consciously deliberating about them. And, and that's probably rare, actually. We, don't, we just don't do that all the time for a lot of actions. We're not really consciously deliberating because through experience, we've learned good ways to behave in the world and we've cached that knowledge, right? We store that knowledge. That's the basis of our habits. And our habits are really good stored control policies that we've learned from experience. So we've been doing the hard work of making decisions. We've seen how they've turned out. And then we store that knowledge and say, the next time I'm in that situation, I don't have to think as hard about it. I can just, I know this is going to be a good thing to do. And if you do that enough times, you end up not consciously thinking about it at all. And there's a, it's a mistake, I think, to identify the self with just the conscious part. Because all of those habits and policies and attitudes and dispositions are also part of the self, and they're also a large part of the decision-making machinery that we, that we exercise. And of course, we can, just because something's a habit doesn't mean it's automatic and we can't override it. We can think about it. We can choose to deliberate about something and change our mind about it. We can override a habit. It's not the case that all those habits and so on are just configured and we have to act on that programming. It's just convenient to do so most of the time because it saves time and energy and we don't have to think about it, but we can if we want to. So if you think about the mind as, as equivalent to a CEO, let's say, of a corporation, the, the unconscious mind can be middle management and then the, the senses and the motor planning, then there's a layers below that. There's kind of layers and layers of, of organization. Just because the CEO is not absolutely conscious of all the workings of the organization doesn't mean the CEO has no control over them. In many cases, it's delegated or it's set in place. The CEO will pay attention to it when it's necessary. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and in part, some sort of strategic constraints that inform the decision-making at these lower levels that, that as you said, the the CEO doesn't have to care about, right? And the, and the worst kind of CEO is a micromanager who's trying to do everything themselves, trying to control everything, and they can't, right? That's why we have these hierarchical kind of um, structures, and we have a sort of a similar structure in the brain. Although I wouldn't, it's not that there's an ultimate executive that's in charge of things, but there are elements, parts of the brain, especially more frontal, prefrontal cortex, for example, that is concerned with strategic thinking and planning over long timeframes and sustaining behavior um, towards long-term goals. And in a dialogue with the other parts of the brain that are more concerned with immediate action and even motor control and so on, they come to a consensus about what to do at any moment. So it's a little more of a democratic consensus building structure, I think, than a top-down command and control. But, but the metaphor is is okay as far as it goes in that it does pick out the idea that the CEO doesn't want to be or need to be 
concerned with every little thing that goes on, right? They set strategy, they set long-term goals. All right, so if you, if you want to push the analogy a little further, you could say it's an enlightened corporation with plenty of input from the lower levels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in a sense, yeah, the lower levels are empowered to make their own sorts of decisions about what they should be doing based on information that's coming in, but in the context of top-down constraints. And, and so I think that's actually a reasonable description of how the system works. And actually, there's another metaphor which I, which I think is interesting which people will be familiar with, say, from watching Netflix or from YouTube or something like that, where there's a recommender system. A lot of the ideas for what to do, we don't deliberate about them. They occur to us. And sometimes some people will say, that idea just popped into my head. I had nothing to do with that. But you did have something to do with that because you built the recommender system, right? Based on your past experience, it's recommending things that you might do. So we have habits of thought as well as habits of action. And I think those things are still an extended part of ourselves, even though they get ingrained. You're rescuing the whole notion of identity for science, rather than saying that it's this kind of nebulous, taboo subject scientifically. You're saying, no, wait a second. Things like consciousness, identity, volition, agency, those things can be looked at scientifically. Scientists shouldn't just throw up their hands and say, we'll never understand those things. Absolutely. And I think even more, so there's some deeper issues like purpose and meaning and value. And those are terms that many scientists, I think, are a bit allergic to. They sound like they're invoking some cosmic uh, purpose of the universe, for example, which is not what I mean. When we talk about identity, I mentioned even the simplest single-celled organisms, their whole thing, the, the only thing that makes them what they are, is that they maintain this pattern of arrangement of stuff and processes that is an entity that's separate from the rest of the universe in a causal thermodynamic sense. They're doing work to stay organized like that and resist the overall drive towards disorder. And so that gives them a purpose. The purpose of all the bits in there, the reason that they're configured in such a way is that they favor the persistence of the organism through time. And that anchors things like value. Right? So it's good, for example, for a bacterium to move towards a food source. And it's good for the bacterium to move away from some toxic chemical and so on. So you, you can develop a kind of a purposeful, goal-directed science of behavior that doesn't have anything mystical to it. it, it it's almost cybernetics, actually, at one level. But it, it's the scaffold on which evolution eventually builds creatures like us that not only have goals, but we can think about our goals and change them and adapt them to circumstances. Okay, so you've already segued into the next topic that I was gonna suggest, which is how did all this evolution get started? And as you point out, there's a, the first step is a separation between self and environment in a sense, and that even a bacteria or archaea, they, that they, there's a membrane and there's an inside and an outside, in a sense, there's self and everything else. And this is not to personify <laughs> microorganisms, but there is something in common between them and us, which is really, I think, endearing in a way, if you can have any kind of feeling of endearment for a bacteria. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's very fundamental to what it is that, that constitutes life. And it's the reason that I start the book out with that. Some readers may be surprised after the introduction, which lays out these challenges to free will, that 
the, the tack that I take is to say, how could this have evolved? If we want to understand this most complex uh, instantiation of decision-making control that we know of, which is in human beings, where did that come from? And how can we understand these more basic concepts in a simpler setting so that we can get the ideas right and then build on them? And that's why I have to go back to the very origins of life, because you can't get a scientific grasp on purpose and meaning until you understand what it is to be a living thing. And that um, drive for persistence is the anchor, it's the ground on which everything else is built. And the other thing that you're doing in your book, which you make quite explicit, is that you're thinking from a systemic or holistic uh, framework rather than a reductionistic one. And that from a reductionistic framework, everything is the laws of physics and it's all you know, from the bottom up. And how can there be any free will? Because everything is going to be happening at that level. And even if you throw in a little bit of quantum randomness, that's, not, that's just random. You can't have random plus determinism equals free will. So therefore, there's no free will. And that's the way the argument usually works. But you point out that, wait a second, if you look at it from a systemic point of view, then you could start talking about things like value and purpose and meaning and decision-making and doing and things like that. Yeah, and so there's two sort of things tied up there. There's reductionism uh, of where you, you're saying, look, all the business is actually down at lower and lower levels. And that takes various forms. So in, in neuroscience, for example, people will reduce the idea of our psychology and cognition and mental states, you know, perception and beliefs and desires and so on, to the firing of neural patterns. And they'll say, okay, look, all the rest of that stuff is epiphenomenal. It's not doing any work. What's doing the work is these neurons are firing and then those ones and those ones, and it's just a big neural machine. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. I think that's a real mistake. And we could come back a little later as to why I think that it's the meaning of those neural states that drives what happens, not the actual physical firings. But while you're reducing things, right, you're going from cognitive level down to the neural level, why stop? There's no principled reason to stop there. Why not just go down to the atoms and the molecules and say, look, yeah, they may be in neural circuits and so on, but the, they're all just electrons and protons and whatever. They're going to obey the laws of physics and just be pushed around in a deterministic way. And there's various sort of presentations of this idea of determinism. The simplest one is that there's no randomness whatsoever. Everything just happens one way. There's only one future open, which is weird. I think a lot of the debate starts like that. They start with that premise. And then you get people who either say free will can't be true in that kind of a universe, or they say, yeah, it's deterministic and you never had really had a choice, but somehow you can be held morally responsible for things anyway, because you're complicated, which is my quick sketch of compatibilism. And I don't think either of those are right. We also don't have to start from that premise because physics doesn't say that. It does, physics just doesn't say that there really is only one future possible. You mentioned already at the quantum level that there's fundamental indeterminacy, but also actually at the classical level, the idea that classical physics is deterministic is just an assumption. It's an idealization that was adopted in physics at a certain stage in its history that doesn't actually have empirical support. Unless you're talking about really simple systems like the orbit of a planet around a star, for example, where there's 
it, it's so simple that whatever little randomness there is doesn't make any effect. But in more complicated systems, it absolutely could have lots of effects, even at the scale of things like you or me. And what that means, it's not that, it's not that some events are determined and some are random. It's that there's a kind of pervasive indefiniteness to the future. The future is underdetermined by the present plus the laws of physics at the low levels. And what that means is that allows, it opens the door for the organization of the system to have some scope in determining how it goes. Right? And the organization of the system in living things follows design principles. There are functionalities built into even a little bacterium that are there because they further the persistence of the whole organization. So you can take this holistic systems view, as you were mentioning, as being able to have some causal power precisely because the low level reductive interactions are not fully determined. They just don't say with 100% finality what the next state is going to be. So one thing I just wanted to mention regarding what you were just saying is that you invoke Aristotle, that he outlined more than one, but actually four different kinds of causes. And the one that you invoke as being relevant here is the final cause or teleological cause would be another way to put it, that, uh, that sometimes actions are determined by the end rather than the prior conditions. For instance, let's just to give a trivial example, I'm playing baseball, I'm in the outfield, and my movement is going to be determined by the decision to catch the ball. And that goal is going to determine what I do with my body. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's right. And people sometimes struggle with the idea, like, again, like it's magic, like it's causation from the future back to the present. But that's not the case at all. In the, the example you just described, the reason you're going, your behavior is constrained the way it is because you adopted the goal of catching the ball, right? So it's the, your past event of adopting the goal that is constraining your future event. And like I said, that, that's perfectly normal part of a control system architecture that you could build into a robot if you wanted to. But there's a certain goal and it constrains the action of the, of the organism or the system at any given point in time. And what's different in us from just a robot is that we have so many goals and we juggle all these different things in non-deterministic kind of a way that we can say it's us who settles the outcome. It's not a predetermined kind of a thing. So I'm wondering if, even though we have limited time, if we can get a kind of overview of how the development of agency unfolded through evolution. So we've already, we started with microorganisms and the separation from the environment, but then things get more and more complex. And what's really cool about your book is that it goes through the various steps in a way that feels graspable. Good, I'm glad to hear that. That's very gratifying. So yeah, the idea is, like we, what we started with already in a bacterium is that they have these control policies that will enable them to move towards food, say, and move away from bad things. So approach or avoid, which actually, if you think about it, the, the same principle applies to a lot of our behaviors. It's even in more sophisticated organisms like us. What happened, of course, over evolution is that organisms developed as, as multicellular creatures, not just one cell at a time, but collections of cells that then differentiated into different parts. And once you have that, then you have to have a system that can control what the different parts are doing. So if it can move, 
its own parts of its body or if it can move in the world, then that requires a control system. And the control system that evolved was neurons and muscles that move the various bits and the neurons that control which bits to move when in order to produce effective movement in the world. And the next component that's key then is to link that. So if you have some repertoire of actions, you could do A, B, C, or D, you can move forwards or backwards or whatever it is. Then the next bit that's really adaptive is to know why you should move forwards or backwards. So is there something out in the world that you should move towards or avoid? So it's the same idea as the bacterium. It's just involving more complex machinery. And in the simplest organisms, there's a pretty close link between the sensors that say sense touch or smell and the effectors, which are the things that like muscles that execute the action. So they're pretty close together. But there's a couple maybe intervening layers where there's some integration that happens. So even, for example, in a little nematode worm, the little microscopic things that live in the soil, they basically just move forwards or backwards. They don't really do a lot else. They look for food. And they integrate some signals all at once through a couple of levels of neural processing in it, what begins to look like a brain. It's only a few neurons deep, as it were. Once you get that, you get a little bit of insulation from the exigencies of what's going on in the environment. There's a little bit more that the organism itself is deciding on in response to everything that it's uh, exposed to and its recent history and what it has learned uh, from its recent past and so on. So it starts to be more agential. It's, it's a, it has more autonomy, I think, from the environment. Now, the next sort of stage that's interesting in, in evolution is the development of long-range senses, things like sight and hearing that are different from smell or touch because smell or touch are literally contacting the thing that the organism is interested in. Right? If it's smelling something, there's a chemical, it literally has to be detected by the receptor proteins on the surface of the animal or in the nose. Or if it's touching something, obviously it's touching it. Sight doesn't, it's just responding to it's just photons in the electromagnetic spectrum. And what we're interested in is the fact that there are discontinuities in those photons that are entering our eyes because they're bouncing off things in the world. And effectively, the same is true for hearing, except it's vibrations in the air. So what the organism has to do is figure out from this stream of photons entering its eyes, what was it out in the world that's causing those stimuli? What's the sources of my sensory data? What's the best explanation? And that requires a lot of cognition. You have to do some processing to separate out, to do contrast enhancement, to do figure ground separation and figure out depth and movement, what's moving where. And so there's tons of levels of sensory processing that are required to do that. And then you end up with a pattern of activation in the brain that means something. It may mean, for example, there's a face out in the world. In this part of the visual world, there's a face. And that is decoupled from obligate action. The organism doesn't have to do something. There's no reflexive behavior. That's just part of the information that it has to work on. So now it has to say, okay, what should I do? Given that there's a face out in the world and there's all these other things out in the world, and this is my internal state, and these are the goals that I have, and these are the ongoing behaviors and, that I'm trying to achieve. So what should I do right now? And that's where decision-making starts to get much more both historical and much more future-looking. So it's historical because when we parse 
our sensory data into objects in the world, we're also linking them to our knowledge of the world. So I can see in front of me a computer, a bottle of water, a table, chairs, and so on. And those aren't just neutral objects. I'm bringing a lot of knowledge to the situation. I know chairs are for sitting on and water's for drinking and the computer's for talking to you on. And so as organisms got more sophisticated over time, over evolution, uh, at least along our lineage, they built up this capacity to learn more and more from experience, more and more of their own individual experience, and to allow that to guide their decision-making. And for me, there's a difference there from what the bacterium was doing, because you could say the bacterium is acting for reasons, the reasons that help it stay alive, but they're not like the individual bacterium's reasons. They're set that way by natural selection. And we have some that are set by natural selection as well, but we also have this capacity to learn as individuals through our lifetime in ways that can guide our behavior in a much more sophisticated manner and that allow us, the other aspect of this is that we plan for things very far in the future. And actually even just the evolution of sight made that valuable because we can see things coming from a mile off, right? So it pays to be able to think about things that won't be here till 10 minutes from now or 15 minutes from now or whatever it is. So our cognitive apparatus evolved, got more sophisticated. We were able to learn more about things, gather more knowledge of the world, build up a map and understanding of things in the world and ourself, what we can do with things, what they can do to us, etc. And just, again, add a few more layers of insulation from the immediacies of the environment. We're not just reacting to things. We're very proactive. We're guiding our behavior. We're managing our agendas through time. And we're accommodating to incoming information in the light of everything else that we know. Yeah, and even if survival is the kind of ultimate motive for any living creature, it becomes very abstract and, and indirect. So we, it becomes so complex that we, it would sometimes be hard to map what we're doing to some kind of survival motive. I, I want to just actually shift gears a little bit. I'd like to talk about the experiment conducted by Benjamin Libet which a lot of neuroscientists have taken to prove that we don't have free will. And I had heard of this experiment before I read the book, but I'd never heard the critique before. And it was really fascinating. So could you give us a sense of what that experiment was and, and where you take issue with, with the supposed results? Sure. Yeah. So these were um, very famous, massively overinterpreted experiments that were done in the 1980s by Benjamin Libet and his colleagues. And what they were doing was they would ask someone to come and sit at a desk and they would wire up a little, a little recording device that would record electrical activity in the muscles of their hand. And then they would simply ask them to move your hand on a whim. Whenever you feel like it, move your hand. Now, at the same time, they had an, an EEG or electroencephalogram recording on their head, a big net of electrodes on your head that can record electrical activity in the brain. So what they wanted to see was when did we get a signal in the part of the brain that's planning motor movements relative to when the movement happens. So when they do that, what they could see is that before an action was occurred, right before this little flick happened, within uh, hundreds of milliseconds before that happened, you, you'd start to get this sort of buildup of activity in this preparatory motor area, which is called a readiness potential. And that's perfectly fine. That preceded the movement, right? That made sense. The bit that didn't make most sense or did that surprise people was that they also asked the participants to study this sort of moving clock and to report 
when they consciously felt like they had an urge to move. And what was surprising was that this readiness potential started to ramp up a few hundred milliseconds before the people reported that they consciously felt like they wanted to move. So the interpretation was, when you're doing this kind of a movement, your brain decides when to do it, and then it just reports that to your conscious mind. Now, the extrapolation was huge. Right? The extrapolation was whenever you do anything, that's what's happening. Your brain is deciding, and then it reports it to your conscious mind as an afterthought. And then your conscious mind may try and rationalize it, for example. Okay. So that's been a picture that's been going around for a long time, and it's, it's skewed and mistaken in a number of ways, I think. First of all, even if it were the case that in fact that's what's happening in the Libet experiment setup, that wouldn't mean that all of our decisions are like that. So remember, these people have been asked to lift their hand on a whim whenever the urge takes them, right? For no reason, literally for no reason. It's, it couldn't be further from a deliberative decision, right? It's absolutely not the kind of scenario we would talk about when we're saying I exercise my free will except in the sense that they exercised their free will when they agreed to participate under these conditions. So first of all, it's just not relevant to, to that kind of scenario. And in fact, there's another design of this experiment where the setup, the, the physical setup is exactly the same, but the motivation is different. And this was done by Uri Maus and, and Liad Mudrik a couple of years ago, where they made the decision consequential. And they did it by saying, okay, when you move your left hand versus your right hand, you're, we're going to give money to a charity, and it might be a charity that you care about versus one that you don't care about. And then the participants cared. And then it turned out that the, there was no link between the readiness potential and their feeling of when they wanted to uh, move or which choice they execute. But more generally, in this scenario, there's a kind of a technical thing that goes on. It's going to take me a second to explain. So when you do an EEG recording with brain waves, there's tons and tons of background activity. And in order to see any signal at all and separate this, the little bit of signal from all this background noise, you have to do multiple recordings of the same type of thing, multiple trials, and then average them together to see this kind of thing. So when the uh, Libet and colleagues did that, in order to line up the trials, they phase locked them all to the moment when the person lifted their hand. And then they looked backwards and saw there's this readiness potential that ramps up to that point. Now, that gives an illusion that the start, when the activity starts ramping up, that's when the decision has been made and that's when a commitment to move has been made. But in fact, if you do a separate set of experiments, same idea, but you every once in a while just give a person a noise or a cue to do something, and then you phase lock to that, then what you actually see is that readiness potential that seems to ramp up and keep going up only looks like that for the trials when something happened. A lot of time it just goes away again. So it's a noisy thing. You get this kind of a fluctuation in activity in this area. And there is a mechanism that kind of ratchets up so it can accumulate noise up to a point where a threshold is reached and a decision is executed. But most of the time what's happening there is probably that what people are doing is saying, look, I don't care. It means nothing to me when I would move my hand here. I've been told to do it occasionally, so fine, I will, but I don't care when. And I'm just going to let my brain, th this mechanism in my brain, 
for coming to a decision, execute that. And yeah, it's going to feel like something once that happens. I think that's, that is what happens. And I think that's what's interesting there is that you can see it as an example of a scenario where we choose to use randomness in our noisiness in our neural circuits as a resource to resolve an impasse. Because in this case, there's no reason to do that. There's no reason to choose when to do it. You just have to do something occasionally. Um, and I think that's a widespread phenomenon. I'm wondering if uh, you're being told that you're going to be pressing a lever or identifying a time when you want to, when you want to um, move your hand, let's say, that the, you're readying your, your motor system to act. So you're, it's like being at, at, at a foot race and you're waiting for the gun to go off. That's different than if normal life where you're not ready, getting ready to move. So you would think that there'd be some readiness potential that's fluctuating, fluctuating at a low level even before. I think there's a lot of sort of artificial aspects to this scenario. So I think we need to be really careful before we extrapolate or overinterpret from it to every kind of decision making that we do. But what it does reflect something interesting, which is this idea of accumulating something. And in this case, it's accumulating noise. But sometimes we have circuits that accumulate evidence. So sometimes when we're doing some kind of a task, we are thinking maybe it's like this or maybe it's like that. And we're gathering evidence, maybe just perceptual evidence. Maybe we're thinking about something and then we resolve it and we go, yeah, it's like this. I should do that. And that's a, so that the me mechanism of accumulating evidence up to some threshold when action is a reasonable seems to be a widespread neural mechanism. And it's a good one because a lot of the time we have ambiguous, uncertain, incomplete information about the state of the world. And we need to wait a little bit to learn more. But at some stage, we have to act. And yeah, so I think there's aspects of the Libet experiment setup that are, that are interesting and informative about some kinds of decision making. But it's a mistake to think that all kinds of decision making are like that, because the setup of the experiment explicitly rules out deliberation in that sense. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that the media took the, uh, the headline without really going into the details. We were talking about the Libet experiment, and that also, I think, segues very nicely to talking about the role of randomness in decision-making, which was really fascinating. I had never come across this idea before reading your book, but that it's not that randomness somehow magically creates free will, but that randomness is used by higher-level organisms to make decisions. So could you explain about that? It's really quite fascinating. Yeah, let me say there's two aspects to this. So first of all, what I would say is that randomness in the universe uh, the indefiniteness of the future and the underdetermination by the low-level laws of physics is what allows complex organisms to evolve at all, right? And it's what allows structure and meaning to have any causal influence in the system. At a broad level, I think that's the most important element, is that it allows us, it allows us as entities, as cells, to make decisions for our own reasons and not just be pushed around by the low-level parts that we have. However, there are circumstances in which we can actually use randomness uh, to help us, say, break a deadlock, to just drive us to do something when we have no good reason to do one thing or another, we don't have enough information and we're never going to get it, or we just don't care what we do, but it's important to do something. Rather than just freeze up. Exactly. So the important thing is to do something. In many scenarios, it doesn't matter what, it, or it matters less what you do, or you don't know what if it matters what you do yet, but you still want to do something. 
There are also scenarios where it pays to be random. And you see this in a lot of escape behavior of various creatures where they have a, an escape circuit that's a really rapid kind of response to some threat. Like a, for insects, for example, if they see a, a shadow passes over them, they have this jump fiber circuit that really rapidly produces an escape response, but not in a predictable direction. If it was predictable, they'd be easy prey, right? All, all a, a predator would have to do is, is wave its hand over it and then hold its mouth open, waiting for the, the fly to jump in there. There's a so organisms like that use randomness in their neural circuits to be unpredictable to predators. And actually, if any of your listeners ever play poker, they'll know it's a good idea to be random. If your behavior is too predictable, you are going to lose money. You're always betting one way or another way. And in fact, many poker players use random number generators because they don't even trust themselves to, to be fully random. So yeah, randomness can be a resource and organisms can take advantage of it. And there's even a, a way to ramp up the level of randomness. For example, say we're doing some activity and it's just not turning out well. So when we're doing something, we have some goal. It's not immediate, right? Most behaviors take some time. They're activities as opposed to actions. And so we say we're pursuing some goal, but it's just not working out. Then it may be either we need to persevere or we need to go back to the drawing board and think of something else to do. And at that stage, there are systems in our brains that can increase the search space. So when we're in some scenario, some set of ideas may occur to us, and we might try out one of those, uh, but maybe it doesn't work out great. So then we go back and say, nope, I need some more ideas. And so there are things like norepinephrine in, in the brain that sort of increase the noisiness of cortical circuits that are suggesting these various options. And I think that's a kind of a basis for, for creativity. So thinking outside the box, getting out of your habits of thought based on the need that comes from your goals not being met. Yeah, so it's a kind of divergent thinking in a sense or coming up with new ideas. So you can just throw, throw the information into a hopper and draw things out in a sense. And in a controlled way, that's the interesting thing, right? It's a, it's a resource not only that can be drawn upon, but that can be tuned. It's a tunable resource, the randomness of it. So with this last segment, I'd like to talk about the constraints to free will, because obviously you're not saying that every action or every decision is completely free of any prior influences. And in fact, you're saying quite the opposite. And some people who talk about the free will determinism problem put a lot of emphasis on the ways in which we are constrained by, let's say, our childhoods or by trauma or by psychiatric conditions and neurological conditions. And you're not in any way whatsoever discounting that. And in fact, what you've been saying and what you say in your book is that it would be absolutely absurd to talk about a completely free, undetermined will, that we're constrained by those external factors or uh, that I mentioned just earlier, but also constrained by our own continuity because we have personality characteristics, we have experiences, we have what we've invested in, we've had, we have our identity that, we're in, that we want to continue. So there's many ways in which whatever freedom we have to make decisions is within a certain bounds. Yeah, yes, I agree. So we don't have absolute freedom. It becomes a really incoherent notion to think of, imagine an organism that's doing everything it does, has no prior influences on it whatsoever. It would just be doing things at random. It, would be, it wouldn't be a self at all. They would have no constraint or continuity through time. It would have no future directedness because that would be a constraint. 
it would have no reason to do anything. It actually wouldn't survive long at all. So that's incoherent. And instead, we have a much more naturalized view of organisms as having degrees of freedom. So in any given scenario, there's some options that are open to us, and there's some options, some subset of those occur to us, and one of those is the one that we, through evaluation, think is the best thing to do. And all of that is informed by the prior influences, like our genetics, like human genetics generally, just evolution, like the way our brain develops in utero, the experiences that we've had, and so on. And there's a couple of ways you can look at that. One is to say, all of those things are things that happen to you, right, that you didn't have any hand in. And for some of them, that's true, right? We didn't choose our own genetics, for example. But there are some people who would say every experience that you had is just something that happened to you that is shaping you in for the future, but it's not anything you, you were involved in. And that's a kind of a circular argument because it assumes that at any moment you never were involved in making a choice. Whereas if at every moment you are involved in making a choice and that is having an effect on shaping your future character and your habits and your policies and attitudes and commitments, then right now, the way that you are configured right now is partly due to the accumulated effects of all your prior choices. You've been building yourself through time, psychologically. And so I think that's a, a view of character that differs from the idea that it's just passive and not in any way up to us. And instead, it's a view where we take some ownership of the way our own character emerges. And it's not to say there aren't some influences on it still, right, that from your, the way your, say, risk aversion circuits are tuned or how impulsive you are, things like that, you can't necessarily change. But you don't have to see those influences as complete determinants. There's still room, plenty of room, for things to be up to us and as we go through life, for them to be up to us in a continuous extended way, not just this momentary kind of flash in the pan kind of way. Yeah, so you're making a very nice distinction between personality characteristics or temperament versus character. And the way you're using character is that's something that you can actually build in yourself. You can build it through perseverance and through good moral decisions and values and that sort of thing. I wanted to give an example. I was sort of curious what you think about this. You know, when I think about alcoholism, I think about the freedom to cease being an alcoholic is very limited. And but it's more limited the deeper in you go into the addiction. So when you take the first drink, that's probably when if you have tendencies for alcoholism, that's when you have the most freedom to make a decision not to to go off on a different path. But the further you go into the addiction, the less and less the free will is. It's similar in a way to the relative lack of free will that a baby or young child has. The older you get, the more you you have self-control and self-awareness and future awareness and all the things that go into making moral decisions. Yeah, and I think so what you're describing is a very naturalistic way to think of free will as a set of capacities that we have for impulse control, for planning, for executive function, for rational deliberation, and so on. And I think effectively that is what we mean. That's what people mean when they're talking about free will, generally. And what you can see is that, yeah, those are not evenly distributed, right? They increase with maturity. And that's why we don't treat children in the legal system in the same way that we treat adults, for example, because we don't consider them to be as responsible as adults are because they haven't fully matured. And the same if people are under 
influence of drugs that can affect those systems. If they're, if they're say, psychotic or they have some other psychiatric Ill- illness, that can affect those uh, control systems. And yeah, if they have things like alcoholism or drug addiction, those really affect those systems. In fact, they hijack those systems. Uh, addiction specifically hijacks the reward learning systems that is the thing that drives our habits. And we have evolved with these systems that are really powerful for guiding our future behavior, but we didn't evolve in the presence of these chemicals that can override those systems. And so all of that together, to me, just reinforces the notion that we can talk about free will as an evolved biological capacity that relies on these neural systems, which are the means by which we make decisions without either invoking some kind of a magical spirit that has to be living somewhere and and pushing things around with its noodly appendages, or uh, without thinking that risking that we're reducing everything to neural mechanism because the neural mechanisms only work the way they do because they instantiate patterns that have meaning that we're thinking about, right? Our cognition is real and it has power the neural substrate is just what we use to do that. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word instantiation, that there are higher level things happening, but they still have to happen through the building blocks. But the causality can be start with the higher level. Exactly. And it's not, there's nothing magic about that. That's how computer programs work. We're talking on Zoom here. There's a program that somebody wrote that, that has this functionality to it. You, know, you may be running it on a different computer than I am. It's still doing the same thing. The, the low level details are incidental, even though there has to be some physical instantiation, but how it's physically instantiated, those details don't matter. And the same thing is true in our brains when we're thinking about stuff. The thinking has is, is not immaterial, it's not magic. It's instantiated in neural patterns, but the details of those patterns are not causally important. So if we can come uh, full circle here and talk about the importance of kind of re- retaining a sense of free will and agency, that uh, at least in some situations, praise and blame are necessary for things like social development and self-control, social cohesion, social order. That would, if you really believed, and there was a book that came out at the same time that you did, that believes that none of these things make any sense because we're all completely determined that we should really just do away with praise and blame altogether. And you wonder how would society function really, if people believe that no one was deserving of praise or blame for anything. Yeah, it's a weird one. And I don't quite get how the people who advance that position go about their daily lives if they really believe that no one does anything, right? that everything is just predetermined, including everything they do themselves. That must be a strange, a strange way to inhabit the world and go through your daily lives thinking, just wait to see what you're going to do next. I don't know. But you wouldn't wait. It would just happen anyway. Everything would happen exactly the way it was going to happen anyway. You just happen to ha- also have this belief that it's just happening and that you're just, your consciousness is just co- going along as a witness. I guess so, until you come to the point where your consciousness becomes, starts to inspect what you're doing and ask the reasons why you wonder whether you should do it or not. And then if you want to believe that's also just determined, at some point it just gets, let me say, it doesn't match the phenomenology and there isn't good evidence for it. To me, it's an extraordinary claim that should require extraordinary evidence, but it doesn't have it. So that's my view. But the question of, yeah, we talk about moral responsibility, legal responsibility, and so on, praise and blame, reward and punishment. Do people deserve it? 
those things are a little bit separable from the question of whether there's control or not. And I think they bear on these aspects of pro-social evolution and cultural evolution. We just need to have some systems whereby people cooperate and whereby that cooperation is incentivized by both rewards and punishments so that we end up with a functioning society. That's how we evolved the, to have the society we have. So those themselves are the sort of biological systems for fairness and sharing and reciprocity and so on and cooperativity. So all of those things are at play. And yeah, for me, it, the idea of saying that nobody's responsible for anything that they do just doesn't, it's just a non-starter, right? It just doesn't get us anywhere because we need those systems to enforce just moral pro-social norms. Really. So in, in your book, you I think early on in the book, you talk about you shouldn't believe things scientifically just because you want to, just because of the consequences of the belief. But I think that's not completely true. And William James, who you talk about in other contexts in the book, if all other things being equal, if two scientific theories have equivalent or somewhat equivalent support, then it makes sense to talk about what the consequences would be of, of believing one versus the other. And so I'm on your side <laughs> in terms of, you know, I think that having a, a belief that we, that we actually are real is <laughs> helpful. It's funny. So let me give the opposite view, because I, as you mentioned, this new book came out determined by Robert Sapolsky, in which he makes the claim that we don't have any free will. We have no shred of free will or agency whatsoever, and that all of our behaviors are completely determined by these prior factors. And to be fair to him, the reason I think why he's saying that is that he objects to the idea that everybody is gets praise or blame for everything that they do as if none of these other um, factors were in play. And partly, I think you can argue against that notion without this absolutist metaphysical appeal to no free will whatsoever. You can completely acknowledge that there are prior influences on people's behavior. And I think we do. When we say, look, yeah, so-and-so, he couldn't help it. It's the way he was raised. Or he couldn't help being this way because his, he has a genetic tendency to be that way. Or, just like his dad, he's got a hot temper, whatever it is. And of course, the legal system already takes those things into account. They take this variation in the level of control that people have. To some extent, depending on the judge, yeah. Yeah, exactly, to some extent. And they take someone's circumstances and so on. I think that all is already built into the way we think about it. I think so. Anyway, uh, Kevin uh, Mitchell, uh, the professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin and author of Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving. This is really fascinating. That's been my pleasure, Stuart. Thanks a million for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.